C'est très bien, Maurice. Vous pouvez vous retirer. Merci. Bonsoir, messieurs dames. Vous avez vu C'est l'exemple même de ce qu'il ne faut pas faire avec le martini dry. Il faut être indulgent. Maurice est un homme du peuple. Il n'a pas eu d'éducation. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Out of Oscar podcast. This season, we are focusing on the films that just missed out on Best Picture nominations despite healthy runs in their award seasons. I'm your host, James Konofsky, and today I'm joined by Andrew Fraser to discuss Louis Buñuel's The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie and how that lies in the 72 Best Picture race. In the words of Frank Lovesey of TV Guide, Buñuel's film is a brilliant surrealistic joke about a group of friends whose attempts to dine are continually thwarted. Charles Taylor of Salon calls it one of the most completely realized comedies ever made. So Andrew, first of all, thanks for being here today with me. And secondly, why did you pick this film for discussion? Hey, thanks for having me. Um, it's great to be back. And I chose uh, The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie because um, I do really enjoy this film and I think it's uh, an incredibly unique and influential film and it kind of occupies like a strange position, I guess, in Oscar history in that it belongs to, I guess, a genre of film that I don't feel is frequently um, embraced by the Academy. So I thought it was, you know, perhaps a good opportunity to kind of talk about something that is outside the Academy's usual wheelhouse, but one that they decided to uh, somewhat embrace. Um, and I just think it's an incredibly original film that is difficult to talk about, but worth talking about. Sure. And I do agree that it is an interesting film to digest and cer certainly also to unpack. Um, it's bizarre to be here discussing it in terms of larger Oscar success, even though it did win foreign language film at that year's Oscars and at, for Best Picture of Equivalence won the National Society of Film Critics and was also nominated at the BAFTAs. I kind of want this episode to sort of analyse why we like the film and what we like of the film and not necessarily the film which I think might lose a few people and then also, you know, can get a bit tricky, I find. So I guess we can sort of just go step by step and mention the things that stand out about this film and what we love. Um, but my opening question to you is, does this film have the best title in cinematic history? Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, sure. It's definitely up there. It's a title that maybe... Uh, sort of tells you everything and nothing about the film. Um, it's perhaps a misleading title intentionally, but, um, you know, not without its purpose. Uh, it also has a great poster and it's probably one of the best posters of all time as well as titles. Mm -hmm. um, but it certainly grabs your attention and um, it's interesting. I think I did read that there was a different title um, that was initially intended for the film i'm trying to think what that was now oh yeah it was um bourgeois enchantment yeah um but i think the uh discreet charm of the bourgeoisie is a better and um ultimately more iconic choice yeah it it sort of clues you into the characters but i think ultimately leaves you cold because it doesn't really as you said explain much about their predicament it also reminds me of a film that I love. Have you seen Whit Stillman's Metropolitan? Yeah. The exchange about that. Yeah. The exchange <laughs> about the title, how they're led on, and that it actually <laughs> does not, um, it's not an accurate representation of the bourgeoisie and they're quite offended by it. I also love how in that film they're sitting down at dinner when they mention that. Famously in this film, they cannot eat dinner and keeps being interrupted. Do you know the French film, the, the Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie? When I first heard that title, I, I thought, finally, someone's going to tell the truth about the bourgeoisie. What a disappointment. I, it would be hard to imagine a, a less fair or, or accurate portrait. Well, of course. Bunuel's a surrealist. Despising the bourgeoisie is part of their credo. My experience with it is kind of funny, though. I have seen it before, and the first time just didn't connect with me at all. I also went in blind, which is probably not the best bet when you're dealing with a surrealist film, um, because 
even though the plot isn't going to like give everything away, I feel like you needed that introduction. Otherwise you're going to be really lost. And I was, I also am kicking myself at how I didn't find it funny in the first place when it is actually a very funny sort of blink and you'll miss it type of film. I watched it for the first time because I had seen Parasite and I wanted more films about class. And I came across, you know, obviously this film, which deals with the middle class. And I was drafting an essay called The Discreet Charm of Parasite in which I was going to compare the two, but they were sort of incomparable and it didn't go anywhere. And I guess because I was also analysing it, you know, from the offset, I wasn't able to enjoy it. This time around, I did like it a, a, a lot more. I will say the ending sort of lost me um, or like the final act, I guess you could say post, you know, they're on stage um, and they've forgotten their lines. You mentioned before we started recording that you love this film. Is it a performance thing? Is it Buñuel's direction? You are an actor. Uh, allegedly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think what I like about think what I like about the film is I guess um to give a bit of background like my sort of journey towards it is um I saw the film Dogtooth by Yorgos Lanthimos sort of around the time it came out and really really responded to it um it's sort of surrealistic tone and um sardonic uh really dry humor I found really appealing and I know that the like Lanthimos sort of mode isn't really for everyone but um in sort of being really surprised by that film and really enjoying his films after that, um, I, you know, sort of wanted to get a greater sense of what his inspirations were. And um, that is kind of how I came across um, this film, or that's how I sort of um, was implored to watch it for the first time. I had sort of been aware of it and I did know about it as well as um, The Exterminating Angel, which is um, mm. Wells' uh, sort of, you know, companion piece to this film in a lot of ways. And I had been aware of his role, like in the uh, surrealist movement with um, Dali and Lorca. Um, but I was actually working on a theatre piece with some friends that um, was sort of riffing on um, ideas of um, social performance and um, Dogtooth was kind of an influence for that. And then as a result, you know, sitting down and watching um, the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie and seeing the like influence it has had on so many films and theatre works and art pieces after. Um, I think that film has since become an influence for me in the way that it's influenced others. Um, just particularly the style of performance being somewhat like subdued and just sort of this dry humour um, that invites the audience to sort of just accept really um, surreal or um, false artificial situations as reality um and then also just trusting the audience i love that this film and i think that's why I like repeat viewings of this film are really beneficial because bunuel just trusts the audience to make their own sort of decisions about the film and to there's never like anything condescending and there's never like oh you need to find this funny like this is where you laugh like he sort of um, allows you to find the humour where it responds to you and um, the changing situations, I think, creates room for that. Sure. And I wrote something similar down when I was watching it in that it is a great thing that Benwell yet yeah, trusts us, like trusts our intuition and also how we respond to his film. You mentioned condescending. I think that's a good point. But it's also because, like, the meaning, if that's what he's trying to display to us, you know, certain meanings in their conversations in the life and the sort of illusion of their circumstances are so fleeting. And you sort of have to be on your toes as an audience member to sort of eat them up and to recognize them. They try and eat dinner as they do often in the film and they open onto a stage and there's an audience in front of them. And then I love that moment in particular because you sort of analyze or overanalyze what that might mean in a surrealist backdrop oh is he trying to make a commentary a comment on how the middle class are perceived as i don't know literally above everyone else or that their life is a stage the decisions they make are so overbloated and exaggerated but then you realize that once you once you read a little bit more into it that it's just been well you know reiterating a dream that he had that he was an actor on stage and he forgot his lines 
and he made that into a sequence in the film. But here I am going like, oh, what does that mean? Let me let me get out my new pen and highlight. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the film, I don't want to say straightforward, but maybe not as complicated as it lets on. But yeah, do you have anything particular about to say about that stage sequence? Because I feel like that's the most famous sort of shot in the film, aside from them, you know, endlessly walking down that tar road. Oh, I think kind of like what you said, I think what is sort of special about this film is that, yes, it is really surreal, but if you kind of just decide, you know, from early on to stop being like, okay, but what does this mean? And then like, what is that about? If you just kind of submit yourself to the ride, there's a lot of sort of joy and humour to be found as Bunuel sort of continually undercuts each moment by having someone awaken from a dream or, um, you know, something sort of bizarre happens that um, throws you out of the scene that you were sort of finally into the rhythm of. Um, And then, yeah, I think like thematically that performance scene where they're on the stage and the actors begin to exit and sort of are suddenly confused about their lines uh, is perhaps thematically, yeah, it's the most um, obvious, feels not very generous, but I think, yeah, thematically it is sort of the most clear and that it is sort of poking fun at the ways that um, we tend to go through our lives with a certain level of artifice. We're performing uh, socially the ways that we think are appropriate or the ways that we've been taught. So, you know, we know the rituals of a dinner party and when they are disrupted, we, I guess, you know, quote unquote, forget our lines and that we don't really know what to do. The um, social contract has been broken which means everything falls apart. Um, And I, yeah, there's just so much humour to be found. Like, I think um, that's what Bunuel is so um, talented at in that he finds the most banal of situations that everyone can identify, even if it's not the bougiest uh, dinner party, you know, it might just be having dinner at home with your family, but he identifies the absurdity in the banal and in doing so sort of uh, forces us to, assess how even the most minute gestures that we do unthinkingly are actually part of a larger sort of social performance. Mm. The film presents itself as like a Rorschach test on class. You have the chauffeur sipping and then a character butts in to mention how that is an incorrect way to drink your martini. And I think it's just that sort of obsession they have with first off the material and yeah, inconsequential things that in the end don't really amount to anything because there isn't really a connecting thread to their experiences in the film. It's all, it's presented in like a vignette. I do love in the beginning when they are dining at that roadside cafe or whatever, suddenly everything is brought back into reality once they walk into the wake of the owner or the funeral of the owner. That's great also because it's like a aha moment. Like it's the first time you sort of get a taste of Benwell's surrealism. It's probably better not to analyze it, even though it does have some really bold things to say, for instance, about Latin American dictatorship at the time. And, you know, those are very present themes and yeah, they, they would be fascinating to unpack. But I also think the film operates on just a very cinematic level in that Bunuel has just coordinated the beats of every scene to precision and it's better to just absorb that. And I mean, I love the performances as well, but we can get into that. I agree. The performances are really great. The whole ensemble um, carve out really distinct characters out of um, people who don't really have a ton about them that is wholly tangible yet um, as the film continues on, we kind of come to recognize their sort of individual quirks or traits And um, there's this sort of like push and pull between the fact that they just kind of exist as like a monolith. They're somewhat um, just indispensable from one another. But then at the same time, yeah, they are these like individuals with particular motives in the ways that, you know, uh, people of any class have their own agenda, but I guess particularly some of the more insidious natures Mm. um, present in the upper middle class. Um, And then I think aesthetically, Um, The film is quite interesting in that it's relatively subtle in the sense that it doesn't call too much attention to its visual style. Like the colour palette is um, 
quite drab at times or it's somewhat subdued, but then there are these really like striking images created within those frames that are very memorable, you know, whether it's like the ghost of a character's mother Mm. or, you know, a rubber chicken on a plate or yeah, the group walking down a road. Um, They are theatrical, but they're not uh, sort of artificial or overly stylized Mm. in say the way musicals are or, Um, you know, sort of more uh, quirky or absurd films of the, you know, 90s into the 2000s. Um, There's a subtlety to it that I sort of appreciate and I think that helps kind of thematically convey the banality that Benuela is sort of critiquing. Like I don't think he wants the absurdity to come from the style. I think he wants it to be somewhat pedestrian so that uh, people find the familiarity in their own life. And I... um, find that really enjoyable because it also is still quite stylish and like all the actors um, particularly the women like do actually look so glamorous and we are naturally quite seduced by their screen presence yeah it's an interesting point I just want to you know spotlight who's in this ensemble because I mean it's a privilege to watch them act I mean you have on the male side Fernando Ray who at the time American audiences would have been familiar with because he was just in the French Connection uh, as the um, Marcelese drug kingpin, whatever, who likes to wave on subways. Uh, you've also got Jean-Pierre Cassel, Vincent's father. He's really funny in this scene. When he comes back after making love, he's, I was gone for 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we figured. Um, then you've got Delphi- Delphine Seyrig. Well, I mean, she was in Jeanne Diamant sort of in the middle of the 70s, Stéphane Audran, who won, I think, the BAFTA for this film with, like, another shared with another film when the BAFTAs used to do that. Um, I think that was, like, the following year or something. On this viewing, who really stuck out to me was Buell Augier, who is Florence. Oh, my God, she's amazing. Perky. It seems like she's she's trying to fit in by, um, by critiquing. You know, she sits down for tea and straight mm. away she's talking about the cello. You can sense how restless she is in that situation. And she thinks the way to get her way in or to settle in is by, you know, critiquing stuff that's already perceived as bourgeoisie. You're at a restaurant where a celloist is playing. But I think she's definitely putting on putting it on. She's um she's a bit confused. Like she orders melon with some alcoholic drink in the beginning. Like what the what is that? Yeah, I absolutely love her, like, just the sort of frenetic energy that she has. It's sort of, like, really chaotic and, like, she eventually builds mm. this quite, like, frantic, like, physicality that's, like, really electric. And um, it's funny. I think a lot of the performances can seem quite deceptively, like, simple because, again, they're kind of going with this, like, slight, they begin in this slightly, like, bewildered, monotonal style. But when you do kind of look at the film with a closer eye you can see how carefully um calculated uh each of these characters Mm. are and how these actors have modulated their performances and they just don't overdo it which is so great there's never any sense of like one upmanship and they obviously trust Bunuel and they trust that the comedy is there because of the situation not because like oh I need to be really funny in this scene like they know that they're like the scenario is funny like it's absurd yeah and there's also one who I'm missing, and I don't know the actor's name. He plays the priest slash gardener. I am scared by him when they zoom in on his on his eyes in the beginning. And that also sets up that wonderful tidbit about you know, the bourgeoisie's obsession with status and uniforms. You know, as a gardener, it's like, get out of this mansion I've got. But when then he comes back as a priest, they're ready to kiss his ring almost immediately. Yeah. <laughs> It's a constantly running commentary. I sort of see it as like a tap. There's so much to drink. I'm really committing to that metaphor. They're definitely playing into this facade and they love the association and like the connections more than I would say their circumstances. How well off actually are these people? I mean, I get the sense that they are pretty rich and I think like that's, that's ultimately the biggest part of the satire. Like, I don't know, like I've had conversations with friends who, you know, come from a similar sort of middle class background with perhaps working class parents as 
like myself and we've often commented on like just sort of how I find that people who come from working class to middle class backgrounds are usually very flexible and accommodating and people from upper class backgrounds tend to be a bit more like no this is what I want like if it doesn't work okay well I'm just not going to do it like it's an attitude kind of thing and I think that's kind of reflected in the ways that they just sort of walk in and they're kind of like okay we're here for dinner and then it's like what no you're not and they're like there's no like oh uh, yes come in for dinner like let's just make it work it's like no like we didn't have dinner and they're like yes we did <laughs> mate where's the dinner <laughs> you know but then I also don't think that he's like necessarily patronizing the system he's definitely like exacerbating their flaws but yeah yeah and someone could argue that like just given his sort of status that he's also part of an elite like even it may not necessarily mm. be financial but like definitely like status as an you know, elite artist. I think what mm-hmm. was refreshing about Bunuel though is he like kind of constantly bit the hand that feed him, which like made, fed him rather, which maybe, you know, deserves criticism. But then also like he was just reflecting the politics of his work, which, you know, ultimately makes me personally like him more. Would you consider discrete charm a good starting point if someone is has only ever been scarred by that woman getting her eye cut in that film and he's scared to watch a Bunuel film. Yeah, I think if you can handle an eye getting sliced open, uh, Unshin Andalu is like a great place to start in that it's 16 minutes and, you know, it's just one of the most iconic, influential short films of all time. Mm. But I, yeah, I'd say The Discreet Charm of Bourgeoisie is a good place to start. I'm certainly no expert, but I think it kind of puts you into uh, the thematic world of Bunuel and then also sort of the style and, you know, perhaps if you're someone that is a bit afraid of black and white cinema or, um, you know, films, you know, pre-colour, um, it's a good place to start um, as, you know, much of his filmography sort of uh, dates pretty far back. It's pretty amazing that this is one of his last sort of films and mm. I think it's refreshing that he was someone that didn't, sort of grow more conservative necessarily with age. Like he still had a biting sort of political satire even at the sort of end of his film career. Do you know where Discreet Charm sits in the international feature winners that you've seen? Because this did win best foreign language film as it was at the time. And I guess we're sort of a bit surprised by that. You know, they it's interesting because they have awarded Fellini plenty of times but you sort of see them pushing back uh, from surrealist abstract films. They tend to like more political films or, well, yeah, political films is a good way to put it. But yeah, what do you think of Discreet Charm as a foreign language film winner? Because personally, um, I think it definitely had an advantage because it is a Louis Bunuel film that is under, you know, the country of France. I know The Emigrants, which was nominated in Best Picture, was eligible for the year prior so if it actually had competition with that maybe the emigrants could have had an upper hand because that tells a deeply sort of human family driven story like it's probably mid-tier foreign language films from what I've seen I haven't seen many to be honest I've seen maybe about like 20 25 just because some of them just seem very uninteresting (laughs) totally and they're hard to access like some of them um but yeah, for me, I think it's definitely up there. I appreciate just how unique it is. Um, and I'm thrilled that it was recognised in its time and continues to be celebrated. Um, yeah, I, I definitely think it's great to see something that uh, was stylistically challenging to, uh, you know, I guess commercial cinema, have that be recognized and it's not something to me that necessarily fills perhaps some of the uh cliches that are associated with films that grab Mm. nominations in this category you know i think sometimes the international film category has like a reputation for you know awarding things that are deeply harrowing or address some awful uh event in history or perhaps on the other side of that are are cold or slow moving. Um, Whereas despite the discreet charm of bourgeoisie, perhaps not being accessible uh, in an overt way, it's kind of something that really could be watched by any audience member 
um, like I would love to get a child's interpretation of this film versus, you know, a geriatric mm. um, assessment. But yeah, I personally really rate it um, as a winner. And I love that Gunwell um, was recognized just because I think he's an incredibly important and original artist. Yeah. And more to the point of discrete charm missing in best picture, primarily non-English films don't have an upper hand when it comes to a best picture nomination in history we've had only 12 and then you add the surrealist element can you even think of a surrealist film that was a best picture nominee because i can't i would say like something like terence malick is where we sort of get closer to that genre you know something like the tree of life being nominated for best picture like i don't know if i'd call that a surrealist film um it's certainly philosophical uh, but yeah, I'm trying to like see how the discrete charm of the bourgeoisie would fit as a best picture nominee in 72. And even though that would be a spectacular piece of Oscar history, I can't really see that happening, but I will agree that yes, I do think the film is deceivingly mainstream. I feel like a wide audience would actually appreciate what this film has to say, especially in the first half where it sort of, sort of deals with dreams, which are easy for humans to grasp because we all experience them um and also is a bit more literal in it in conveying its meaning mm. aside from idealism could you see the academy going for discrete charm in best picture yeah i think it probably did have a solid chance like um it was the critics favorite of that year and Bunuel at that point was certainly a revered filmmaker. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I can't say, you know, I mean, everything's easier in hindsight. But, um, yeah, I can't say I guess I'm surprised just given the history and sort of what we understand of voting bodies at that time that the film missed. And, yeah, it's an interesting provocation to think, yeah, is there anything similar to this film that has been nominated? And off the top of my head, I was kind of like, hmm. I don't know, really. I mean, some things I could think of are like, uh, you know, all that jazz is somewhat surreal, but mm. it has, you know, like it was directed by someone who already was quite respected by the Academy and it's an American film in, in English mm. that's much more sort of accessible. Um, and then, you know, jumping to, as I mentioned, Yorgos Lanthimos, like the favourite, while still being quite absurd, is compared to many of his other films, definitely his most accessible and sort of has yeah. like the trappings of a period piece or at least sort of it lures you in with the promise of being a period piece and then undercuts with its sense of humour. Um, but I would love to see more um, films in this vein embraced by the Academy. It's sort of a genre like the sort of social absurd um, comedy is one that mm. I personally really respond to. I, I reckon, like, the equivalent for this year would be, like, us talking about bad luck banging or loony porn being, like... <laughs> sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because isn't that... That's, like, a social absurdist, realist, however you want to pinpoint it type of film, which I still haven't seen. <laughs> it's provocative in a different way is probably a good way of putting it. Yeah, no, I agree. Also, just, like, love the favourite and all that jazz. Um more films like that just being made in general, please, filmmakers yes. around the world. Um, if you want to take that task to heart, you know, go ahead, uh, do <laughs> that. Um, we have Bob Fosse, you just mentioned him, and I want to speak a little bit more about our thoughts on the 72 Best Picture nominees, and Fosse was there for Cabaret. Um, an eight-time Oscar winner. I think it holds the record for the most Oscar wins to not win Best Picture. You know, it's a great film. It's a classic. I love the choreo. Liza is great. So is Joel Grey. Um, just want to put that out there. Joel Grey is a very good supporting actor winner. That's my take. I definitely think <laughs> it has pacing issues. And, you know, we, we talk about the material and perhaps sanitizing the material and the period, the time period. And I always use my point of reference for Cabaret as um, Sam Mandy's revival production, mm. 
which was a lot grittier and a lot darker. And that's probably a bit unfair to Fossey's work. I have a feeling, an inkling that you like Cabaret. Do you want to have a moment? <laughs> Why would you say that? Um, yeah, I love, <laughs> I love Cabaret. Um, I think like I'm someone that really resonates with Bob Fosse's style. Um, his sort of mode of filmmaking really works for me. I really respond to the way his films are edited um, with their sort of, yeah, kinetic quality. And um, yeah, I, I think the central performance from Liza Minnelli, whilst yes, famously is not how Sally Bowles was written, is just like, a supernova of charisma mm-hmm. and you know just seeing a performer at her peak uh, is so thrilling and with such uh sort of devastating comedy like it's she's so funny throughout so much of the film but there's always this um undercurrent of sadness and i just think it's a really original take on a um social historical drama you know you learn so much about that time um through this film but it's not in any sort of boring uh wikipedia page style uh, mm. biopic or drama um this sort of tension between what's going on in germany outside the Kit Kat club and within it is mm. so compelling and then yeah just how kind of uh, somewhat revolutionary that queer narrative was at the forefront portraying uh, quote-unquote unconventional relationships on film um, is great and I think with each viewing you find something new the choreography like you said is phenomenal the design is iconic um, and yeah it, it's a great great film and would have made a very deserving um, winner in a very stacked lineup. If you were watching that award ceremony in the audience or at home, you see a film take home eight Oscars, including Best Director, and you think, okay, how is it going to miss Best Picture? All right, Sounder was nominated. Didn't take home any Oscars, uh, like another um, Best Picture nominee, The Emigrants. If you want to hear more about those films, I guess check out Sam Meltzer's and the Oscar Doesn't Go To podcast. What do you think of Sounder? Yeah, I think Sounder, like, is really lovely and, it, um, you know, it sort of has that social realist style. You know, the photography is really interesting with the sort of, you know, like pulling on the Dorothy Lane and the um, Gordon Parks sort of visual vocabulary. And, yeah, it's like, you know, it's both fantastic that Cicely Tyson and um, Paul Winfield, two amazing performers, I think were the first... Um, african-american male and female from a film to be nominated for best actor mm, and i think it's best actress four times yeah something times. like that um recently with Marini. yeah and then of course you know the devastating thing is then it like took so long to happen again and you know in comparison to some of the other nominees of that year these actors you know didn't go on to have illustrious film careers they had amazing film careers um but just not to the um level of consistent work or opportunities that were afforded to their white counterparts particularly Cicely Tyson's performance is um really lived in and beautiful and yes as you highlighted like that moment um that sort of running scene which is probably the most iconic in the film Mm. uh is a great highlight of yeah just her wonderful talent um that she continued to bless us with for many years um and yeah I I think this in the last year in 2021 it was um added to the National Film Registry and um I hope more people kind of seek out this film I'm I'm glad it was recognized um because I think if it hadn't it could have easily have been you know kind of lost to time but it was also a really big box office success and again it's just like a shame like it's proof that at least you know definitely then and it's still true, you know, maybe not the kind of film, these kind of films don't pull in as much money anymore, but just the fact that, you know, films that are led by people that don't necessarily fit the archetypal mould of the Hollywood star um, appeal to audiences and they'll go and see it. Yeah. I want to move on to Deliverance, which is a film I have less praise for. Um, I know a lot of, a lot of people like it, I think it relies on this atmosphere that I really want no part in and it reels you in with the uh, disquieting 
sense of nature around them and you've got, you know, it opens with the dueling banjos, which is obviously disorients you immediately. You know, this is not going to be some average canoe trip. The film has an obsession with how, you know, civilised people devolve into primitive behaviour when they're thrown into the depths of sort of conflicting nature. And I can see that and I guess I can appreciate it, but the film still doesn't connect with me. I think it ends up going too far and it goes so far that it actually misses out on its intended meaning. It's shocking and it's notorious. It certainly has a infamous scene and a quote which has frustratingly become film law. Yeah, maybe you have something better to say because people actually like love this film. Like it's got plenty of five-star top reviews on the letterbox if you want to use that as a gauge for anything. Um, so I feel like, you know, I never came to Deliverance with like a clean slate. I always sort of knew what I was in for. I knew that everyone's like, oh, it's so intense, it's so intense. And then obviously, as you alluded to, the one of the central scenes of the film is like quite a disturbing rape scene, um, which is often sort of quoted for comedy, I guess, maybe. Like some people find it funny. But I can also respect like, you know, sort of what the film is sort of trying to say. And as a major film of its era that was generally looking at, you know, for lack of a better phrase, toxic masculinity, um, there is something quite brazen about it. Um, and kind of, you know, it's assessment of nature versus nurture sort of questions. Um, and I also think the film visually is quite striking. I will agree on that. Like it is well shot. There's a sort of like compelling nature to it that you don't want to be drawn in by, but ultimately does um, draw your attention. Um, mm. I also misspoke. So Sound of the Emigrants and Deliverance didn't win any of the Oscars that they were nominated for which I guess is what happens when a film wins eight Oscars in yes. one night. Yeah. <laughs> I know, which is a shame because like I, I tend to prefer to like, you know, when they spread the wealth a bit, but um, look, I think like, again, like it's crazy that a movie like Deliverance uh, was such a massive box office hit. Mm. Um, and yeah, I certainly don't begrudge it being recognized um, in that. I think, I, I can't imagine what it would have been like at the time. It seems to have made a massive impact on people who were alive in 1972 and seemed to really rock them. But I also think that this 1970s Academy was slightly more daring than they, than they were, say, in the following decade, because 1970s Academy did take risks. You had a lot of non-English uh, performances being nominated in the acting categories, which was really admirable especially in retrospect it certainly opens up those performances to modern viewers just being nominated um speaking of non-english films we have the emigrants which is the last loser in best picture i would say a nominee that's probably a nicer way of putting it and that's jan trolls the emigrants which for me is one of the most powerful films that is also relatively straightforward in its premise there are some moments and some shots especially with christina holding her child that resound so loudly um it's a film that prioritizes a deeply human experience immigrating to another country yet one that has political repercussions that you cannot ignore i feel like especially in an american political climate I really wish kids watched this film in school. Um, I feel like it's definitely a course on empathy. And Liv Ullman, who is perhaps the greatest actress of all, actor, excuse me, of all time. I feel like I will be confident enough to say that in like by my thirties. Um, has one of the, just this beautifully aware performance. Um, I don't want to say it's self-aware, but perhaps you agree with me in that Ullman is so aware of the art of acting and the craft. It's just impressive and spellbinding. And she taps into Christina with, I would say, tattoo needle precision. She really just brings forward the character's life. I say life because she feels like a lived-in person. She's bringing a generation of experiences to the forefront. Yeah, I mean, it's like hardly 
<laughs> original to, you know, give hosannas to Liv Ullman. But yeah, she really is amazing. And, um, you know, she could, like, she's so stunning. And like, particularly in this era of her career, like she's just so beautiful and the camera loves her that like, you know, there could be some resting on that alone. Like that enough would be compelling. She is just genuinely attractive to look at and the camera mm. is immediately sort of drawn to her. But she, yeah, always imbues her performances with such depth um, and intelligence. She's clearly um, an incredibly switched on performer. And I, you know, I don't think that's any secret. And yeah, she's so sort of subtle and captivating. Um, and yeah, it's like you look at her body of work at this time and it's like so unparalleled. Like it's the mm -hmm. stuff that actors dream of to have, you know, collaborations with directors um, who, you know, see the incredible talent in you and give you numerous opportunities to bring that out in such different characters as well, but still sort of, um, you know, isolating the, the sort of cool, yeah, Ullman-esque quality that, um, mm. is really singular to her um, never really overplayed um, and always so um, well modulated and she's definitely um, matched well with Max von Sydow who obviously also was an incredible actor um, of a similar skill and talent um, and yes obviously you know like you can't not acknowledge the sort of Bergman uh influence in terms of just like you know the actors but then i also have to remember that most of the time it was the same directors and the same actors <laughs> working so i would say they they picked a really good slate of performers and you know obviously bergman had his recurring actors like you mentioned two of them are in, are in the leads of this film um the Emigrants is probably my second choice for Best Picture. I'm so glad it was nominated here and I can completely understand why it was. If we talk about accessibility in terms of discrete charm, well, this is a very accessible film despite its length, which I didn't find to be a problem. Maybe when they're on the ship, um, it sort of lost me. But when they arrived into the US, it just drew me back in straight away. I'm looking forward to watching The New Land. I don't know if you've seen that one. No, I haven't. I just love this. And Liv Ullman is probably my runner-up to Minnelli. Um, how can you discredit Eliza Minnelli when it seems like sacrilege? So I just wish Liv Ullman won an Oscar. That's, I guess that's what I'll say on that. Yes, definitely a tragedy. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is. Like, it's not even a joke. But, <laughs> um, we have our winner, which has been spoken talked about endlessly and that's francis ford coppola's the godfather cool um <laughs> <laughs> you know what else what else can you say about this film that hasn't already been said yeah it is one of the best picture winners of all time it's a genre within itself um a good film and has a great final shot yeah it's a great movie uh Wow, shocking surprise of the podcast to say that The Godfather is a great movie. But um, yeah, I mean, upon rewatching it kind of like the other day, um, you know, like so many of the performances are so compelling, obviously highlighting, I guess, Al Pacino being the standout for me at mm -hmm. least. Um, and also just the design. I mean, again, the cinematography is just absolutely gorgeous and so much of um, the craft of the film is super compelling and, very original in its um, way you know the work that Gordon Willis was doing in film during the 70s is just some of my favorite cinematography mm. he was such a genius of framing and um, added so much depth to the movies that he worked on and just elevates them um, yeah I mean I'm sure there are many far more articulate people to speak on The Godfather um, other than that to say yeah it's a great um, american classic and deserves its place in the canon i definitely think there are other films that you know are perhaps overshadowed because of this film's legacy but um it's hard mm. to deny and it also just makes me depressed when i <laughs> um you know when you look at stats and reviews of the time and like this was you know 
the highest grossing film of 1972 and it's a three hour um crime epic with you know incredibly mm. human sort of themes and amazing craft and performances we yeah. can sort of soothe ourselves with nostalgia or sort of aligns to my point about the 1970s academy being daring because in the film world they were testing the waters you know there was actual innovation a film like sounder as we mentioned was revolutionary in its cast and sort of seeing how that would work with an adult market and what is there left to what is there left to test you know i mean it's it's saddening and you think like something like deliverance i mean i'm probably not the best person to talk about deliverance but i can understand that it was a new sort of film and you have something like cabaret which was a uh, an adaptation of a musical which was itself was an adaptation of a play and you're bringing in a director who has such an informed and well-rounded and recognizable style and then you have uh, an adaptation of an epic novel that is film history and then you have discrete discrete charm which is like please give me more films in that vein today that people want to see i think that's a thing you can still make these films are people gonna show up for them and you know movie making is a business how how much longer do studios want to lose money on these adult dramas when you see the disappointment of something like um the last jewel or west side story it's bleak out here but in terms of um the best picture winner are you happy with The Godfather as the best picture winner for 72? Yeah, of course. I don't begrudge it. It's a great film. Um, it's one of the best best picture winners of all time, as you said. Um, I think, honestly, though, like any of these choices um, has merits of this lineup. So, but, you know, yeah. The Godfather is arguably the most iconic of the bunch. And, yeah, it definitely deserves its place. Yeah. Do you have any... Other 72 films that you'd like to spotlight, especially in terms of like best picture? I feel like I've more or less covered everything. I'll just once again reiterate that I'm really happy that Emigrants got in here. I was floored by that film. Um, I would probably highlight, you know, on an intellectual level or just, you know, filmmaking level, I think like Solaris. I don't actually know if it was... Oh, cool. technically eligible but it is a 1972 film but like it probably wasn't even released in that year i don't know i'd have to check um similarly mm. um the bitter tears of petra von kant um the uh reina verna fassbinder yeah. um but honestly the film i rewatched the most from 1972 and like i guess my quote unquote favorite is what's up doc oh i had a feeling you yeah I love What's Up, Doc. Just one of the funniest films. It genuinely makes me, like, cackle with laughter. Madeline Kahn's debut performance, I think, you know, is up there with, like, Vivian Lee in terms of best screen um, debuts. Mm -hmm. uh, and That's... it's, like, Barbara's great. Ryan O'Neill's amazing. Polly Platt's uh, set design. Um and costume design is just so inventive and it's, you know, I, I wish there were more screwball comedies in general being made today because they're just such a fun genre. And this is just a delightful homage. I, lo I love that movie so much. And um, it's nice to shout it out as well um, in the week of us, you know, recording this. Um, Peter Bogdanovich, uh, who was the director of that film, um, passed away. So it's a great opportunity to watch that movie if you haven't. Have you seen it? I haven't. Um, oh, you got to get on it. But I love everything else that Madeline Kahn is in. Um, she's probably one of my favorite character actors or supporting players from that decade. Her work with um, Mel Brooks is just hysterical. Um, I was rewatching the trailer for What's Up, Doc. In the beginning, Bogdanovich says, and here's Barbara Streisand, and she goes, Streisand. Streisand. And it's like that moment in Licorice Pizza. Um, definitely like check out the first 20 seconds of that trailer. Oh, I haven't seen it. I will. Um, I had just a Bradley Cooper image flash in my mind when she, when she said that. 
Um, yes. Even though I'm pretty sure she does, he does pronounce it right. I don't know. I hear the same <laughs> thing when people pronounce her name, honestly. <laughs> anyway, you got to check it out. It's so funny. Um, and what about you? Is there any other movies from this year you want to shout out? Um, I will say I love Sleuth, which was nominated director, uh, actor for Olivier, if I'm correct. And then also and Michael Caine. And Michael Caine, that's right. And also replaced the Godfather's dramatic score nomination because it was disqualified, which I find like funny because <laughs> um, that's such an iconic theme, of course. Yeah, no, it's such a, you watching like, it's an acting masterclass, first of all, and it's just so well paced and inviting, but also mysterious and then takes a really sinister turn. Stick with it because if you are watching it and you're not really feeling it, just like stick with it because it does reveal itself with this like tinderbox of delight in the end. I don't know if these things are actually eligible for the Oscars, but Hitchcock's Frenzy from 72 also is a great film, has that wonderful shot where the camera leaves the scene of the murder. I don't know what you'd nominate it for, though. Um, Maybe the BAFTAs can do something with that. All right, so that concludes our episode on the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie and the wonderful slate of nominees for 1972's Best Picture. Thank you for joining me, Andrew. Once again, you were my first guest, and now you're the first guest for the second season. We're keeping it very consistent over here uh yes thank you so much for having me uh it's great to be back and i love the work that you're doing with this podcast and i look forward to many more uh discussions about film and oscar related stuff and i hope for more discussions with you along the line um in the meantime where can people find you you can find me on twitter uh at andrew jt fraser and I'm on Instagram at andrew.fraser. And my website is andrew-fraser.net. And I'm available for all different reasons. Uh, but if you want to chat film, Twitter is probably the best place to go. And also, in case people don't actually go and check you out, it's important, I think, on my part to mention that Andrew is a multi-layered artist. So please check out what he does. Oh, that's um, very kind. Thank you. As for myself, I'm a podcaster. No, what am I saying? You can find me on Twitter at out of Oscar Pod. Excuse me. And then from there, you can find my personal Twitter. Episodes this year will be released fortnightly, just to keep that in mind. And we'll be solely discussing the best picture misses. Um, if you want a little bit more context about that, check the description for um the link to the letterbox list that I made for this sort of season. In the meantime, take care, everyone. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. Ciao.